Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to our smashing three-part Forum Borealis program where we take on one of the most underreported yet greatest stories in modern times, with an underwhelming reception and abundance of criticism. So today we've invited on the essential spider behind this breakthrough, and unlike most of our shows, you will notice that we air multiple critical questions, and indeed, especially in part 3, flaunt all the relevant dirty laundry that I for one can fathom. At the same time, we examine every possible aspect of this bombshell and what lies behind, approaching it philosophically, existentially, practically, cynically, hopefully, and, and what have you. You know, when we started the forum, I intended never to have a classical UFO show. But the recent developments leave us no choice. Sure, we have covered the classified space program, which kind of brought us to this. But today, we will serve you our first pure examination of these anomalous aerial phenomenons in our Borealis style. And you'll take away from this, if nothing else, at least a much more informed perspective of the matter. The good sport of a guest I'm alluding to is none other than our regular Peter Lavanda, the historian and investigative researcher and author who is behind Tom DeLonge and the current breaking news soft disclosure we're experiencing, which is what I'm referring to as today's topic. Mr. Levanda is a leading expert on the obscure, like Nazism, occultism, real-life conspiracy, etc. In the course of his more than 25 years of field research, he's journeyed to more than 40 countries and has lived in a few of them. He's headed a manufacturer company based in Malaysia and was a pioneer in successful trading with China. He has a master in religious studies and Asian studies and speaks a variety of languages, even some dead. Through his life, work and research, he's gained access to all sorts of fringe places, including archives, libraries, military installations and classified government documents, obtaining primary sources and making new discoveries. He has visited Chinese prisons and military bases, Buddhist temples, Muslim boarding schools, Russian Orthodox monasteries, mosques around in Europe, United States and Asia, the Palestine Liberation Organization, several voodoo home forts, the former KGB headquarters in Moscow, to name some. He's interviewed Nazis, neo-Nazis, Klansmen, occultists, Satanists, intel officers and Islamic terrorists. He was detained at the notorious Colonia Dignidad, being held at gunpoint in Latin America, and celebrated with a state dinner 
in Beijing as a teenager he gatecrashed the funeral for assassinated Senator Robert Kennedy at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York and led the procession out of the cathedral. He was a member of the same front organization, a renegade Ukrainian church in the Bronx that provided cover for suspected co-conspirators in the JFK assassination, David Ferry and Jack Martin. In addition, he was an auxiliary police officer for the NYPD, is a member of Mensa, the American Academy of Religion, the Norman Mailer Society and T.E. Lawrence Society. His work has been praised by Jim Morse, Jim Hogan, Norman Mailer, Dick Russell, Whitley Strieber, Catherine Neville, Joseph Farrell and many others. He's appeared in numerous television programs for the History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, TNT, etc. as well as magazines, radio shows and podcasts. Check our website for his bio, full bibliography and online links. Today, he tells all. No filter, no censorship, no pre-planned question. And part of this genuine conversation is also related to the book he co-authored with Tom DeLong called Secret Machines Part 1, Gods, which is the first of the trilogy Gods, Man and War. So sit back and enjoy the ride. Welcome back to the forum, Peter. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and oh, I'm so glad you could do this on short notice because uh, we had to uh, push up in the schedule this interview. I, w- I was thinking of uh, completing the Nazi thread arc we've had with you, mm-hmm. but unforeseen development has forced us into this position. <laughs> right. And before we begin, I have to say, Peter, I don't regard you as a traditional UFO guy, you know? Well, I'm not really. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, nobody thinks of you if they're going to say, you know, the first UFO author that springs to mind. And the same with me. I've never been big on UFOs. I was a little interested in when I was young, but uh, then uh, I got uh, deeper interests as far as I regarded it. And then I got a huge mind blow uh, in in later years uh, when I was confronted with a few things. So, Mm But I've never been, uh, I despise much of that culture and, and stuff around it. So it's pretty ironic that here we are, two guys who are not big on UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to now comment on this big hula hoop. Yeah. That's good. But I, I think maybe that's actually an advantage for both of us. No, I think it's a good thing. I mean, um, the idea of ufology in the minds of most people are is you know tinfoil hats and people who are very credulous and they believe ten impossible things before breakfast and <laughs> it's that kind of yeah. that we have put them in that box. But when I wrote Sinister Forces, there's a lot of UFO material in that trilogy. But mm. from the point of view that there were political connections and there were cultural connections that could not be overlooked, and I, I kept coming across and tripping over the ufo phenomenon in the course of writing this because there's so much documentation there were so many different individuals involved with ufology who are also somehow involved with political assassinations and mm. you know all sorts of other machinations so i felt that i had to look into it but you know then i did this secret space yeah. thing in amsterdam and again that was the approach i was taking i got into ufology from a side door or from a back door maybe <laughs> and it was because of all these really weird 
people who were mm. involved in it one way or the other. So, so yeah, and I think that's really the reason why I was sort of uh, on, in the top five list or something of people to be involved with the Tom DeLonge project mm. because I had a bit more credibility. I wasn't promoting one of the standard narratives on this, right? Mm. You have different groups of people, they're pushing their own story. And I don't have a story on this. I just want to know what it is. I realize that it does exist because the evidence for it is overwhelming. So let's just get, you know, let's calm down and <laughs> look at this thing dispassionately and see how far can we go. Let's enlist some good people from all different walks of life mm. uh, who are specialists in their field and say, let's take this thing seriously. Let's accept that it exists. Where do we go from here? And that's been kind of the approach of the Tom DeLong project. Mm. We're gonna go. We're gonna go in depth into that uh, as this unfolds. But uh, you know, I totally agree with you. And, and I usually say, you can't avoid UFOs in today's discourse. It sneaks in everywhere. Yeah. And you know everything from entertainment to science. And it's true. It's it's the classified space uh, fleet phenomenon that kind of forced the card also in our series. I, I was determined when I began not to have a pure like a traditional UFO show, like, you know, like 50% of coast to coast, not because I'm against it, but precisely because it's not my forte. It's, I think there's so many other stuff that's interesting and it's already very covered. Sure. But I think uh, after, and, and I'm not even a materialist bias on this because I'm totally on board with other perspectives, like also, you know, Graham Hancock and uh, right. more, right? So, uh, but I, I see this from several angles and I think you're right. I think it's, that we speak about it now is will be totally without agenda. We're going to try to approach this from an inquiry perspective. And um, uh, so the secret space program also forced a card because obviously that will be determined as UFO. Right. So, so that's mainly also how we ended up having several shows about that now. But Today is a actually pure UFO program because it's it's triggered by these this drip of mainstream disclosure that just happened. But let's rewind all the way back to what you were starting talking about, namely your involvement with Tom DeLonge. Now, for those who don't even know who he is or, or what that's about, let's start there. Sure. Well, of course, Tom DeLonge came to prominence as one of the front men for a band called Blink-182. And Blink-182 was really famous, uh, mega platinum records and all the rest of it, uh, sort of 90s to early 2000s, I guess, uh, that, that period. And um, he's, he was just notorious for that band. It was the soundtrack for a lot of people who grew up uh, at that time. And uh, I mean, I knew of Blink-182 when I first got the the contact from Tom DeLong, I thought it was a hoax right. because I recognized immediately Blink-182. Um, I said, wait a minute, I know that band. This is What does this mean? <laughs> why, why is somebody claiming to be from a band? And I've had trolls before, so mm. I was very wary of this. And um, uh, yeah. So how did he convince you? Well, this is the thing. I, I didn't want to be involved in something that would ruin whatever 
limited credibility I have <laughs> in my own writings, in my own world. You know, I write about Nazis, which is bad enough, yeah, right? Yeah. So people think that you're off your nut if you talk about Nazi occultism, regardless of all the academic work that's been done on that subject. And Satanism, so, and you go into all the dark corners. All, so, yeah. of, that, all of that, mm. right? So you, you, you struggle to maintain a certain level of credibility by saying, okay, here are my sources, uh, here are the documents, this is why I'm saying this, this is what people have gone on the record as saying – And this is what I'm what I'm trying to do without an agenda, just saying, look at this stuff. It's really weird, you know, and just trying to put it out there and say, what does this mean? What does it imply? So when it comes to this kind of thing, the UFO stuff, and that's really hard. It's the, probably the most difficult of all of these fields to confront or to deal with because there's so much misinformation. Mm -hmm. There's government secrecy you have to deal with, which there really isn't very much when it comes to satanism for instance or or anything else i mean but when it comes to this subject you're on very very um unsteady ground because you don't know who's hey and disinformation don't forget that absolutely you don't know who's lying to you mm. you don't know if you're being taken for a ride you don't know if the people who are talking to you are deliberately lying or they're really sincere but they have nothing but misinformation to share mm-hmm. um or they're being deliberately disinforming you, you know, to, to sway the narrative or to get you running off in different directions. I knew all this getting in. And I told that to Tom when I finally realized Tom was Tom. And Tom said, listen, we have to get to the bottom of this. We have to do what we can to once and for all make some progress on this UFO thing because everybody's going around in circles. You know, everybody is just repeating everybody else. Yeah. There are no good sources except Project Blue Book or a handful of government documents. Past that, there's nothing. And all we're doing is running around in circles. Each side is blaming the other side for being you know, disinformation agents and all the rest of it. And it just, it's just it's, it's a mess. How do we solve this? And the only way to solve it is to scrap everything we think we know, start from a fresh page, and say, okay, there's a UFO phenomenon. What can people tell us about it? People in positions that people who would know. So our approach was to go to people in the government people in the military, people in the intelligence agencies, start from there just to see what shakes loose Mm -hmm. and go with the attitude that we're not here to blame you or to accuse you. All we want is to know what you know and only what you can tell us. If you can't tell us something, then don't. Don't tell us a story. If you're going to speculate, then say you're speculating. Otherwise, we want to cooperate. We want to understand what this is because we feel at this time In our history and in the history of the globe, this is probably the best time to start talking about this in a, in a realistic way. You know, take away all the nonsense and all the disinformation stuff, all the phony stories that came out about Roswell, one after the other. Mm. Um, all the other stuff that people, the, the, uh, the Richard Doty, Paul Benowitz material, which ruined the idea of government um, cooperation for a lot of people. Mm. Because Richard Doty was an Air Force officer and he was sowing disinformation everywhere he went. And we're very sensitive that this could be another case like that. So we've got to be very careful. And people, if they can't go on the record, then they've got to give us really good deep background that we can corroborate somewhere else. So we took that attitude. And it was a non-confrontational attitude. And of course, we also approached people in the sciences and in the humanities also to get their interpretations, to get their takes. I did a lot of research in that area. Uh, talking to philosophers, you know, and people who are dealing with, you know, existentialism and uh, Foucauldian philosophy and all the rest of it, just trying to figure out what are we dealing with if we're not dealing with something human, 
Mm-hmm. If we're not dealing f- with with a phenomenon that is based on the Earth or with from within an Earth-based civilization, mm-hmm. what therefore can we expect? What will be the difficulties in communicating? What will be the difficulties in identifying these visitors? Um, what are the technical problems? Mm-hmm. If you're talking to people at Lockheed, Skunk Works, what are the technical issues? What do you see as the reason why this is impossible? Why why is the UFO uh, aeronautical uh, characteristics, why are they impossible from our point of view of physics? How could we overcome them if we wanted to, if we accepted that these things were real? So these kinds of questions gradually opened a few doors. Mm. And then I wrote uh, what became the foreword to Secret Machines, Gods. And the foreword... Um, Hang on, you wrote the foreword? I thought you wrote the book. Well, I wrote, well Tom and I wrote the book, but what happened first was I wrote this uh, maybe 20, 30-page um, preliminary document, which turned into the prologue to the book. Uh, Jacques Vallée wrote the foreword, mm. but I, I wrote uh, the next ch- chapter in that line. And this was circulated first, and this got the attention of a lot of people who suddenly sat up and said, oh, okay, we see where you're going with this. Okay, we can work with this. And then they started to talk. And that was the the opening uh, salvo in all of this was this was this document that compared our human civilization, our entire human civilization, mm-hmm. to a cargo cult. Right. And right. That concept resonated with so many people. We were really astounded, and people started to open up to us. People who were, you know, general staff. We're talking about people with a lot of stars on their shoulders and talking to us and saying, okay, we look at it this way, we look at it that way. Have you considered this? You know, have you considered this approach? And it gradually led us to the position where we felt more and more confident. And yet, we were trying to keep everybody's identity secret because they didn't want it to be known generally that they were cooperating with us. That was the first rule. Was The first rule of Fight Club is there is no Fight Club. <laughs> and in the case of this, the first rule of our advisors is that there are no advisors. Mm. So... We tried to do that, but of course, then 2016. Yeah, but he he was still allowed to say that he was in touch with yes. so so and so guys. He could just not name them he, directly. He could not name them or identify really where they were where they were based, right? Mm. So he couldn't say I'm talking to three Air Force generals or something. That that wouldn't fly either. So he could talk general vague terms, but not really be any more specific than that. And then of course 2016 happened, and then there was the Podesta email hack. Um, oh, and you, you, I have to tell you, because I, I, I guess I'm touching base more with, with the, the readers than you do. I have to say that your association with Tom DeLong and his association with Podesta has kind of hurt you a little because of yeah. the guilty by association <laughs> logical fallacy, right? Sure. So, so there's a lot of critical people. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise those topics later with you, but uh, oh, just you can- so you know, in case you don't. Oh, I'm very well aware. Okay, okay, good. That's all, that's all I ever get is, well, you know, don't quote Podesta, don't cite Podesta because he's an evil this, that, and everything else. Right. Yeah. We don't we don't believe it. We don't feel we're guilty by association where that's concerned. Others may feel guilt is the correct word. Yeah. But uh, we met him, obviously. Um, that was back in 2015. That was before the campaign really started. Mm. And we talked to uh, we talked to Podesta very you know, openly, like, what do we do? How do we shake the tree loose? How do we get more information out of government on this? Because obviously he thought about this 
a lot. Uh, yeah, he, he's on the record for having been interested in this phenomenon for years well, upon years. Well, he wrote a foreword to Leslie Kane's book on UFOs. Right. 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 So, I mean, he's very open and upfront about it. So this was an excellent opportunity for us to say, okay, you've been in government your entire life. How do we go about shaking the tree loose? How do we get? How do we find out what's going on? So he was very helpful where that was concerned too. So we don't, you know, we we do not deny or in any way try to disparage our relationship with with John Podesta. Mm. So we can discuss all of that later and all the weird stuff about that. But mm. when that came out, the one important thing it did was it revealed to the world that what Tom had been saying all along was true. He was talking to a lot of very high-ranking people in the, in the military and the government and everywhere else. But what it did is it spooked everybody. And the promises he was making about big revelations were postponed and postponed again for one reason or another. Oh, you mean it spooked the, the people you were in touch with? Yes, of course. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Because it spooked uh, half the population too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> That's another Absolutely. matter. I mean, it yeah. spooked us because we, we fell out. We were in radio silence for a period of a couple of weeks. We did not communicate. We didn't know uh, what was compromised. We had to change mm. emails. We had to encrypt things. We had to do we had to do all kinds of crazy stuff, just to make sure that we could have a conversation that wasn't going to be leaked by whoever uh, was responsible for this. Yeah, this is a casualty of war because I I'm totally in favor of WikiLeaks, but uh, I see how it's it's very unfortunate the timing here because you didn't have sinister reasons to be. How, you, you were forced to communicate in communicado with these people, and then you were kind of just casualty of war, like, like you were dragged into the... Yeah. Because if this revelation had happened earlier, it would have been better, because then it wouldn't have hurt this process sure. you, you're talking about. So sure. so we have to kind of have two thoughts in the head at the same time, um, that it is good to, to leak stuff that should... Well, you, you could say it wasn't the most important stuff that was leaked, but I'm so for transparency. But on the other hand, I totally uh, are on board with uh, if I were in your shoes and Tom's shoes, you, you have to do it that way. So that was very yeah. bad timing, very unfortunate. Yeah, of course. We, we, what, what I have a hard time making people understand because I, I don't have my name on the New York Times masthead or something, but I still consider myself bound by the same rules. Mm. And one of the, the, the primary rule of journalism is you don't reveal your sources. If sources want to talk to you on deep background or they want to talk to you anonymously, you have to respect that. But once you start down that road, um, then people accuse you of covering up for someone else. Right. or they accuse you of disinformation or until they know your sources and until they know who they are, see their pictures, see their Facebook page, you know, know their date of birth and blood type. They're not satisfied. And even then. They won't be satisfied. Yeah, but you can't blame them. Look at all the fake whistleblowers. I'll actually name one. In my view, uh, you have Corey Good as a typical example of, of sure. uh, a hoax. So because of these things, you know, people have to be critical, right? And skeptical. Well, well, absolutely. And that you raise a very good point here because Corey Good is a good example. Uh, no pun intended. Um, you have... <laughs> This is the thing. You can refer to your sources anonymously only for so long. Hmm. You know, we were always going to begin revealing people who agreed to it once they felt comfortable. And once WikiLeaks happened, it was revealed that we did have legitimate sources. Hmm. 
And now with the To The Stars Academy rollout that happened just a couple of months ago, now you see their names, their dates, places, it's, it's all there. Yeah. I mean, you know who we're dealing with. There is no there is no secrecy on that level. So if anybody wants to you know, complain about mysterious unnamed sources, that was true when we started. Right. But now it's sort of in your face, right? Mm. And now that it's in your face, people are now complaining about that too, you know? Yeah, because now, oh, it's Pentagon and Intel. We can't trust them. We can't so trust them. Well, they're all shills, right? So, so it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's how it goes. They wanted disclosure. Where were they going to get disclosure from except the government, the military, and industry? Mm. Those are the only places it's going to come from. And so what are we what are we supposed to do? Otherwise, we're just speculating and we're back in in the territory of just making stuff up. Mm. Um, we don't want to make stuff up. We want to show you, okay, if if you have a problem with the material we've released, you know if, if there are you know critiques that can be made of the videos or of the personnel or whatever, that's fine. But it's all out there. We're not hiding this. Mm. We're revealing what we can as we can as the articles in the New York Times revealed. We would have talked about this months earlier, but there were problems with the journalists, problems with the, the media, problems with you know various people over which we had no control. So it made Tom look like he was just uh, talking nonsense, right? Yeah. Uh, I have a big revelation coming, big revel- and it never came. Joe Rogan really ridiculed well, him. People thought he was crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Rogan didn't do anybody any favors by doing that, himself included, because in the end, mm. it was shortly after that interview that all of this broke. And it showed that we were always talking about, <laughs> you know, we were reputably reporting what we could at the time. Bad, bad timing for Rogan, that's true. Bad timing for Rogan, <laughs> yeah. But but in a way, that kind of also saved you, because there's no guarantee how this would have rolled out uh, according to plan. So no. at least that kind of – because I think after the Rogan thing, if that would have allowed to unfold, uh, Tom would have been toast yeah. in most people's view. Sure. And he's still he's still in trouble because there are some genuine criticism I'm going to raise with you later. But sure. uh, I, I have uh, taken some notes here from what you said. First, I want to uh, spring to your defense because uh, you mentioned Jacques Vallée and nobody is questioning his. Well, there's always someone who questions something. But sure. in general, he's uh, a vetted, decent, sincere uh, yeah. guy, right? <clears throat> so he's sure. into this for the inquiry. And I have the same view about you. When it comes to Tom, I have no doubt that he is an idealist. In fact, he borders to being naive, I'd say. Maybe he isn't, but he kind of comes off like that to me. But on the other hand, he, he he's not inept. He has the resources. He has the connections. So uh, as far as his motives goes, I think he, he's uh, sincere. But uh, let's just start with taking the biggest problem immediately. Mm-hmm. You started with saying uh, you, you presented a scenario like it sounded like it was an either or. So let's start there, actually. Uh, I don't think it's an either or. I think this phenomenon, UFOs or UAP or whatever you want to call it, can be a multi. There can be. There are several causes for them. <laughs> Most becomes identified. Right. But even for those who aren't identified, there can still be. And evidence points to that there can be multiple phenomenons. So what's your approach to this either or kind of thing that you started with? Yeah, uh, yeah. 
the either or, I think what you're what you're referring to is either they are or they aren't. Uh, either they are phenomena that are worthy of study, or or there's something that we can dismiss scientifically. No, no, no. I was referring to you said that if they are not human, then what are they? Right, right. Well, same idea. But can't they be both? Can't can't it be uh, several? Uh, Maybe. Well, that's the see. That's the issue. That's what that's what even the, the the scientists that we've that we've talked to and others who've gone on the record have 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 suggested that you know uh, I believe it was Chris Mellon, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, was who's part of our project was asked. I think it was on CNN. Someone asked him, "Couldn't these?" I mean, he was talking about specifically aircraft carriers in the ocean and the, the UAPs showing up or the UFOs showing up and the pilots chasing them and all of this. Mm. And he was asked, well, couldn't that have been designed by a human uh, group or maybe it was the Russians or maybe it was just we ourselves testing a secret weapon? And Chris, uh, you could see he was having a hard time from laughing, to keep from laughing. He was, mm. I mean, here was a guy, Mellon's job was basically to audit all the projects in the Defense Department. I mean, he had this overarching responsibility to go everywhere. He had complete clearance to go into any base, any place, any time, and you know, basically figure out what it was they were up to. That was his job, one of his jobs. Mm. So the point, he started laughing. He says, listen, one thing we know for sure is we don't have that technology. It does not exist. And number two, we would not use our own uh, uh secret weapons against our own people. In other words, we wouldn't try to scare the hell out of our own fighters, maybe cause some deaths in the process. That's just not the way that we work. We secret test weapons. It's out at Area 51 or something. I'm putting words into his mouth, but you know what I mean. We taste but did you believe him when he said that? Yeah. Did he come off as, as uh, honest? He came off as quite credible because mm. I met uh, Chris Mellon uh, prior to all of this and a few of the other people who are involved in the project and they discussed things quite quite openly that they could discuss. Mm. There were things that because they're still bound by, by secrecy agreements and their, their, their security classifications they will not discuss even to me or to Tom or to anyone else. Right. So we, we know, you know how far we can push and how much we can get out but it does make sense from a, sci a scientist and an engineer will tell you as the guy who came to us from Skunk Works. Here was the guy in charge of developing these systems for Skunk Works. And he told us he wants to know how these things fly. He really wants to know how that's possible. And he's working on projects to try to, to understand that. So we're in this position that it can't be the Russians. We pretty much know that no other country on Earth has the capability to send aircraft into, into the atmosphere and then to turn on a dime, to make a 90-degree turn, to do all of these other things that they do, to, to dis disappear. Yeah, that, that's a traditional uh, narrative. That, yeah. uh, we can, we, we're yeah. not there yet, yes. Right. And it seems to be because of all of the secret machines that have been revealed to exist mm. in the last 70 years, we can see the path of evolution of, of aeronautics. You know, we can we can watch it. We can see, okay, they got this far. They broke Mach 1. They broke Mach 2. They did this. They went this far. They had developed these systems for, for uh, depressurization, all the rest of it. They've, we can see that evolution quite clearly. 
In in the white world, yes. But you know as well as me that when they roll out something uh, commercially, it's like decades after it's been. Uh, that that's when they've upgraded the classified like internet, for instance, <laughs> right. was available long before. That's always how they do it. So you can assume that there are who knows how many decades ahead. When I say they, that's another question, right? Uh, there's many compartments, and maybe those you talked with were. Not we're actually on the record with everything, but I'm pretty sure they held something back. Well, everybody holds something back, yeah. and because they have security clearances, they are going to hold something back. Exactly. But there's a very big difference between holding something back and just staying outright. We don't have this kind of technology. We're nowhere near having that kind of technology, and giving the reasons why. If you talk to regular scientists who are not involved in the military-industrial complex, or if you talk to other people, yep. just scientists and engineers in the average world, they are aware of the problems inherent in that type of, of, of flight characteristics. Yep. So if we've solved that problem, the problem of turning on a dime, making a 90-degree turn at full speed in midair, and then going straight up or straight across, that implies that we've solved a number of other issues prior to that, True. prior to getting to that point. Mm. And there's no indication that we have yet. So yes, you could say, you could say there's decades of black uh, development, of covert secret weapons development, of which we're not aware. But then that's the problem, that we're stuck here saying, okay, now what do we talk about? <laughs> you know, if, if, we, if we take that approach, it's like, there's like well, then that, that could explain anything. Yeah, that's true. So, so you have to relate to what can be accounted for. Yeah. So, so you, you have to relate to the kind of white... Sure. That's your approach. I mean, you're not even insider, so that makes totally sense. Right. But That's the, the approach we're taking because there is so much in the white that can be brought to the table and say, look mm. at this, this is what's going on. Yeah. And that's what we did with the videos and all the rest of it. We're pulling this stuff out and saying, okay, you know, we now acknowledge that this stuff exists and the government doesn't know what the hell to do about it. Um, and this is what we're coming out with. This is why we're talking. This is why Luis Elizondo quit the Pentagon and sent his letter of resignation to Mattis saying, I can't deal with this anymore. Mm. You're hiding this from the people. And he walked out and said, we're going to look at this more seriously. Wow. He said that to Mattis. Wow. He said that to Mattis. Yeah. yeah. So, and then a week later, he's on the stage with us during that presentation. So this, these are whistleblowers. Where else can we go for a whistleblower than within deep in the military yeah. industrial complex? That's the only place you're going to get them. It's so true. These are actual whistleblowers, how it's defined, not anonymous people or people who you can't check the credentials for. Uh, like these fake whistleblowers. These are yeah. traditional whistleblowers. These are what qualifies as whistleblowers. But still, <clears throat> there's many people, you know, who, who won't trust Intel and Pentagon people because what, what they say, once CIA, <laughs> always CIA. So you will always have that problem. Well, but then where do you, then where do you, where do you go? But where will you go then? Yeah. Where, no, what? I see. Then you're stuck with with the anonymous whistleblowers yep. who talk telepathically to you know some, <laughs> somebody else who's you know written a book or who has a DVD out. Good point. You've got to draw the line somewhere. Yes, man, you yes. know. Otherwise, you're you're stuck with you're stuck with tinfoil hats again. Yeah, that's true. But I just want to air it so we we vent sure. all aspects of this. Uh, and uh, oh, I'm you... ready to vent anytime. <laughs> cool, cool. So um, yeah, but we're back to the issue, the main issue here. To uh, if you can trust in tell people it would be nice if they could bring about some evidence to back up their claims and in a way that actually has happened we will not go there yet 
But Tom did promise a lot of stuff. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I, I realize his project was sabotaged by the developments. But like I mentioned to you before we went on, I re- just read an article on Vice. There's been a many articles, but there was Vice who had an article on Motherboard called How Accurate Were Tom DeLonge's Aliens Claims and Investigation. I kind of like that. I don't like Vice too much, but I, I did like that article and they could verify half of his claims, which is quite a feat in, in this area. Quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest may be accounted for that stuff was sabotaged. But I, I suggest that we now go into your book before we go back to current affairs again. Okay. Because it's probably easier for people to understand your perspective if you can account for the actual background for the perspective you, you take here um, before we, we see it in light of what's happened. And the book, Secret, is it Secret Machines? Is that how you say it? Yes. Even though it's a K and not a C? Yeah, the K is, it's a long story, but yeah, it's secret, just the way it, it would normally be pronounced. Right. Secret Machines. Right. And, and yep. so, Secret Machines. Let's start with the obvious, why a K and not a C? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Tom's idea from the very beginning, even before I spoke with them, before he even contacted me. His name for this project was going to be Secret Machines with a K. And that was to make it look uh, a bit more street than something that was uh, uh, unapproachable. Uh, He didn't want it to be too obvious uh, that we're talking about secrecy. He wanted to give people a different idea of what secret means. Mm. And the K there is kind of... um, it's also an allusion to to a sort of Germanic spelling of secret. Oh, I thought it was ancient Egyptian. Okay. Mm. Well, well, you could you could say secret, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. do a whole riff yeah. riff on Egyptian gods. <laughs> um, but secret in this case had a lot of other connotations. And Tom is of the of the feeling that the, the Nazis might have been also involved in some uh, way with trying. Okay, so he he admits to that possibility. Oh, he he admits to it. He he admits to the possibility, Mm. and he's trying to find evidence to support it, if there is evidence. And, you know, since I wrote three books on Nazis, uh, it seemed like I was the guy to go to on this. And I'm pretty well aware of the Horton brothers, and I'm aware of the whole Joseph Farrell issues with the, the with the Bell, mm. and with the uh, with General Clamper, you know, and all of this stuff going on, and the the factories in Czechoslovakia, all this stuff that we talk about in Zero Point Gravity, for instance, that you learn about in that in that text. All of these things um, come together, and they kind of lead you in the in the direction of that maybe the Nazis had access to some kind of advanced form of technology, either through accident or design, that they came up with alternate source of energy or an alternate source of propulsion. Mm. And that led me down the rabbit hole of trying to trace back all of the U-boats that were at sea uh, after Germany surrendered and uh, the kind of cargo they were carrying, where they were going, where the crews were headed, and all the rest of it. And, of course, the entire Antarctica scenario as well. So, I did what, what about Kammler and uh, Schauberger? Yeah, well, Kammler, of course, disappeared. So we don't know what happened to Kammler. And that, right away, is, is kind of a red flag to me. Mm. Um, he, he was obviously very well known, very very important guy, responsible for moving Panamunda down to Nordhausen, responsible for getting that whole thing up in remarkably record time, 
digging all these tunnels under the mountains and moving the entire, you know, Messerschmitt operation in there and everything else was just an incredible feat of administration. And then at the very end, he's there with Werner von Braun and with, uh, you know, everybody else. All the usual suspects, yeah. Yeah, and saying, you know, I'll be right back, boys, you know, and then disappearing forever. <laughs> mm. uh, did he disappear to the west or to the east, right? Mm. Or the south, if you ask me. <clears throat> or the south. Mm. Um, did he go into, did he, did he cut a deal with the Soviets? Did he cut a deal, like you say, with the south? Possibly he wound up in North Africa, um, where the Germans had a very strong, you know, rocket uh, program at the end of the war, uh, in the 1950s. Or, or Patagonia. Or, well, okay, Patagonia. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these possibilities. You have the Horton brothers who were actually trying to build a saucer. They had designs for it, which were then later picked up by Avrocar and, and places like that where they were trying to develop some kind of a flying disc. Um, when I was a kid, I had a model of that. I had one of these wow. plastic models of the Avrocar. Mm-hmm. That was one of those famous um, you know, do-it-yourself plastic kits. So, I mean, this was something that was well known to us in the 1950s, this whole idea of building this flying saucer. So, I traced all that. You know, I traced the Horton brothers, and I found that you know, one of the brothers wound up in Argentina working for Perón. There was a, a kind of a atomic energy uh, plant that was in Argentina close to the border of Chile that was being developed you know, to f- try to find alternate sources of energy. All this stuff existed. There's yeah, yeah. What was his name again? The chap who had the project. He was a Nazi bell scientist. Um, Joseph writes extensively about him. Um, yeah, I, I forget his name off the top of my head. But yeah, yeah. yeah. we all know who, who it is. Yeah. So you have all, <laughs> of, all of that stuff is going on, mm. right? So we know that's going on. We know that the, the Germans were shipping uranium to Japan at the end of the war, when they saw that their war was, was over. Yeah. They were shipping engineers, they were shipping physical engineers, drawings, documents, uh, you know, prototypes of bombs, you know, and a lot of uranium. And, and a nuclear scientist on board. Yeah, right. Which we seized off the coast of, I think, Newfoundland yeah. uh, at the end of the war. And that was when we still did not have the bomb. Right. Um, we were still struggling with making the bomb work. We captured the submarine. It is believed because there are eyewitnesses to the fact that Oppenheimer boarded that submarine and inspected the uh, inspected the uranium, inspected the diagrams and everything else, uh, and went back to Los Alamos and bingo, we have a bomb. So it's possible the Germans had solved some problems or had taken such a different approach that it opened up Oppenheimer's eyes to another possibility. Yeah. And therefore, we had the atomic bomb when we did because... In May of 1945, we did not have the bomb. We were nowhere nowhere close to having the bomb. Mm. But suddenly, by June and July, we had it. So there are these stories that were around, and uh, Tom is, you know, has entertained the possibility that maybe there was a German consortium somewhere. The problem with this is that it takes so much industrial material to do the kind of prototyping work and the building work and everything else, you need special metals, you need a big shop, you need the raw materials, you need a, you need a, a supply chain right. uh, to do this. And, of course, you need the personnel operating under complete secrecy. Um, all of these things together, can we sedate with any kind of certainty that there was such a German program in place? It's really hard to do because of all the requirements they would need. However, that's the first critique of this and that's the critique i've heard from a lot of people and it's it's a valid one anybody Mm. who's worked in manufacturing as i have knows that you have so many different moving parts 
um, that's really hard. Look at look at look at the Manhattan Project. Right. So many different factories and and people and thousands of personnel scattered all over the country, all working on different aspects of the problem. True. You would need the same thing. Mm. So, but there's a counter argument, and that is that we know, and it was covered in the Congress of the United States in, officially uh, in the congressional record. We know for a certainty that before the war ended, Germany expatriated a lot of their technicians, a lot of their technology, money, everything else all around the world. There were hundreds and hundreds of corporations set up around the world as branches of their German counterparts so the Germans could get all this stuff out of the way before the Allies came in and seized it. So there was basically a German infrastructure, not necessarily a Nazi infrastructure, right? But there was a German infrastructure a network globally in place when the war ended. So that could have contributed to this, and they could have been able to accomplish this, the development of a secret weapon with a great deal of secrecy, without a lot of transparency. Yeah. They would have been able to do this pretty covertly, at least for a short period of time, until their network started getting rolled up. And not many of them were rolled up. There were networks in Asia, in South America, even in North in the United States, in North America. So there were... Yeah, let's not forget... Yeah. yeah, let's not forget the obvious uh, contribution to this, and that is that huge multinational cartels were uh, German loyal and even Nazi loyal, sure. and they had no problem. I mean, they are still the biggest uh, corporations out there today. And we know that most of this stuff, even NASA stuff, has gone private. It's been compartmentalized, it's been uh, privatized, it's been corporation takeover. Mm -hmm. And that's just the same model the Nazi used uh, right before the end of the war. And the, these big corporations uh, in many industries <clears throat> are all the time doing covert stuff. Not necessarily sinister, but that too. So, so that would be a contribution too if the leaders of these multinational corporations were on board or in touch with each other in some sort of network, then that could be a contributing factor, don't you think? Well, it certainly could be because uh, some of the corporations that you mentioned might have been uh, pro-Nazi, leaning Nazi, pro-German in one way or another, and they would never have come under scrutiny by the intelligence services. We never would have looked at them exactly. because they were American or they were French or they were English or whatever. So they would have been above scrutiny. It's only the Nazis that we were chasing, the actual guys who wore the uniforms. Mm. But the the corporate executives um, were, were simply not, not bothered because – I don't mean at the German companies. The German companies were looked at. They were broken apart in some cases. Krupp, uh, as an example, I think. But as far as their European and American and other corporations who were pro-Nazi, who were openly pro-Nazi, they never came under scrutiny mm. by, for instance, the American intelligence services. The OSS was pretty much out of that business when the war ended. And that was it. There was this, this hiatus period in the 1945, 46, until 47, when CIA was officially created. Um, and even then, they were, they were small at that point and struggling to find their way, and they found it in an anti-communist crusade. Yeah. But until that point, though, we didn't have OSS agents barging into offices in Chicago or Milwaukee or Los Angeles to typical American corporations and demanding to see their records, right? It just it was not happening. It wasn't on. The FBI was not going to go after you know, domestic corporate executives just because they had expressed pro-Nazi sentiments, which means they could operate uh, completely secure from, from oversight. They could do whatever it was that they wanted. 
And if they were pro-Nazi, if they if they sympathized, and a lot of them did, mm. um, they could you know help covertly fund or contribute in some way to a weapons program. Uh, for instance, uh, Hans Ulrich Rudel. Yeah. Here was a probably the most famous pilot of germ of, of, of the Nazi of the uh, Luftwaffe at the time. Rudel was a was an ace. You know he had shot down so many planes. He was Hitler's favorite uh, favorite ace. After the war, Rudel really was not arrested. He was kind of denazified. He was a military guy, so he really wasn't considered a member of the Nazi party or anything like that. But we actually went to Rudel for guidance on how to design our fighter, pl- fighter uh, planes right. in the 1950s. Um, I have evidence of that. I spoke to the people who talked with him. And that was, I think, during the Johnson administration, all the way into the 60s. Where it, where we actually were talking and he was consulting, right? For you know our War Department basically for our Pentagon, um, trying to get information as to what flight characteristics uh, were good, what was bad, what problems did you have with the Messerschmitts and everything else, and mm-hmm. on and on, trying to get information how to improve our own our own fighter jets. And this was the most decorated ace of, of World War II of Germany, mm. and Rudel was running an Odessa operation right under everybody's nose. <laughs> you know, in South America, in Europe, mm. and in the Middle East, uh, his address book is a font of information of people who were sympathetic to to the Nazis in the 1950s and 60s, people who were you know living all over the world. Um, addresses, phone numbers, you know, which I published all in in the Hitler Legacy. Yeah. Um, so here was a guy right away that we know of, just the tip of an iceberg. Here's somebody that we know cooperating with. Our government, our military, you know, I don't say that he contributed designs. He was not an engineer. He was a pilot. But he could contribute very good, you know, anecdotal information as to how the planes work, what their strengths and weaknesses were, mm. and what he would have liked to see in a fighter plane. And he was just some guy, as far as we were concerned. They all liked him because this was Hans Ulrich Rudel, is a pilot. He's one of ours. The flight guys stick together, you know, and he was one of ours, and we liked him. But at the same time, he's running ops in Latin America. And he he showed up in Chile and Colonia Dignidad. He was you yeah. know he knew all the players. He knew the players in the United States. He knew the the neo Nazi groups in the United States. I mean he knew everybody. Yes, yeah. He, yeah. He's a good example to use. Uh, yeah. Uh, because from this example we can surmise two facts. One, if even he, kind of low level in a way, yeah. could have this double role, then it goes for all of them. Sure. And you've pointed out, and I want to show with you detailing this post-war, how the, uh, you know, the, the, your books about this. So we're we going go back to that in detail. But you pointed out how no, almost none of them were regretful, no. which means that uh, they kept the loyalties. But you kind of uh, went a little too, too quick past the German corporations, oh. because although you got a good point for the Western Nazi sympathizers, you know that chemical, uh, big pharma, lots of industries the Nazis were ahead of. And what they did was that they just changed headquarters before the end of the war, 30s and the 40s. And so that maybe the German counterpart were taken, but there wasn't much there. And we know that most of the German elite from before the war, they, so like uh, Thyssen and all these people, lived in huge mansions, huge estates down in 
for instance, especially South America. Uh, so this upper class thing, they didn't go anywhere. They contributed to the development of the corporation, the globalization and all that. And they didn't even have to pay to... I know they they um, cut up the IG Farben. Yeah. Uh, eventually, <laughs> right. So, so that's an, an example. But Merck, uh, Monsanto, all these huge corporations are still. In, many of them were involved in, as you know, in the concentration camps. So I wouldn't go too easy on the German corporations in these perspectives. They could. I, I didn't. I, I didn't realize I was, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I interpreted it like that. No, 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 no. Okay. It, but what I said was there was this famous document that everybody claims was spurious, uh, called the the Maison Rouge uh, meeting which took place uh, in France, Mm -hmm. uh, in occupied France, German-occupied France, where there was a meeting of all these uh, high-ranking German industrialists with the SS, and the SS is telling them, get your stuff out of town, get as much of it as possible overseas. We don't want the, the Allies to come in and seize all this. Now, that document has been questioned, it's been criticized a lot, but our own congressional record, and I think I, I... I give all that information in the Hitler legacy. Our own congressional record, I mean, it's on the record. They went and said there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these corporations that were started by Germany, um, by Nazi Germany. I mean, they, they were expatriated during the Nazi period all over the world. And the congressmen were going nuts over this. They're saying this is like an entire fifth column and it exerts, exists all over the world. Mm. So you've got you've got uh, German corporations in Latin America, in Egypt, in North Africa, all over the place. And to make matters worse, there was a huge amount of currency and you know liquid assets in Swiss banks and other banks, even in New York, all ar- and all around the world, that was used to finance whatever they had to finance when they had to put a a, a stopgap measure. With if someone's running out of funds, they can easily move uh, funds from one account to another and keep these things going. Yeah. So we had. Uh, and the gold, the Nazi gold. And the gold, well, mm. certainly. I mean, the gold is is notorious. I mean, the gold is almost <laughs> legendary and iconic, but yeah. it's actually quite true. The gold that we've traced seems to be even more gold than people thought could exist on the planet wow. from the amount of gold that the Nazis had in their, in their possession, which they moved around the world. And, of course, they moved a lot of gold into South America, but also into Asia. Mm. Uh, as I recounted, uh, 40 tons of gold left Portugal uh, to the, the Bank of, of Lisbon, and 40 tons of that went to uh, Macau, which was a Portuguese colony, of course, at the time. 20 tons of that gold went into China, and the other 20 tons of gold went into Indonesia. Mm. And that's just what we were able to find out of 40 tons of gold. But that documentation is quite secure, and the provenance is well known. It was reported in the New York Times and other places. We right. know that there was an enormous shipments of gold all over the world. Where, what was that going to finance? You ask yourself, qui bono, right? Who benefits mm. from all this gold being moved around? Who has access to those accounts? Who can draw on that gold? That was the important question, and that kind of got lost in the 1950s. When mm. things started to fall apart because of communism, and there was Korea, and there was Vietnam, and all the rest of it, people stopped looking. But there was an enormous amount of gold that is unaccounted for that's just traveled all over the world. And some of it wound up in banks in New York City, in First National Bank, for instance, in their vaults. They had Nazi gold with the, with the, the Reichsbank uh, s- symbols on it. Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff wound up everywhere. Who owns that gold? Mm. Well, that became a major scandal in Asia for a while because it was understood that uh, Hitler's 
banker, Hjalmar Schacht, wound up in Indonesia shortly after Sukarno took over, uh, after the revolution that got rid of the, the Dutch, and advised Sukarno on how he should handle the money, how he should handle this gold. Mm. And Sukarno set up something called the Revolutionary Fund. And the Revolutionary Fund was designed to be uh, a competitor with the World Bank and the IMF. Wow. And of course, we were not going to let that happen, right? No, no. So Sukarno did not last very long, but where did the money wind up? And why was Hjalmar shocked, the Nazi banker advising Sukarno on anything? Mm -hmm. So So you think it was rolled into the the Anglo-American economic system? Oh, I think so, sure. Mm. Schacht and his his, his um, contemporaries and the contacts that he had were in banking. And bankers basically don't recognize boundaries, national borders. No. They are globalists. They don't care about any of that. They just want to make sure the money is safe. So yep. Schacht was part of that. So, great. Now, let's. Uh, we've covered much of this already with you, and we're going to cover more uh, when we can have a total program on this based upon your last Nazi book. But let's rewind even further, because you know, you know about Stephen Greer, right? Sure. He's the, he's the, in, in a way, I look at Tom DeLonge and Stephen Greer as two polar opposites when it comes to hypothesis. One side says that, oh no, this is Stephen Greer. Oh no, all these uh, quote-unquote aliens are really good guys. Uh, they're here for our benefit or, or then pose no harm. But it's the bad guys in our system, shoot first, ask after, who is to blame here. And that also goes for all the bad stuff that is associated with encounters. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's a tempting argument, not just because the religious connotations around that, but also because there are some circumstantial evidence you could point to. Because one, if they have machines and they can defend themselves... Obviously, they're advanced, and if they had bad intentions by now, I mean, how long do you need to do bad stuff, right? Yeah. So, in a way, you could kind of uh, go for that scenario, and I won't even mention criticism of that that goes to that they are doing it covertly, which is much smarter than overtly. Right, <laughs> yeah. But that's that's the one pole, right? And then sure. comes along Tom DeLong and introduces a totally opposite pole. Namely, although you're saying that he's open for several scenarios, he's kind of been associated with this approach that you also took with the insiders that, come on, uh, if you if you trust us and open up to us, uh, if we show you that we uh, have some trust in you and we're going to give you a chance to speak out and you're actually heroes and you get no credit because you've been fighting covertly against these these are bad guys. And it, it's kind of back to the Cold War mentality, only uh, the, it's now the aliens that are the commies. Sure. So you have those those polarities here. And I think there's a case to be made for both. And I want to hear the case for both before I make, because I'm like you, I want to inquire, I want to find out. And I don't entirely go, I can see weaknesses with both poles. So let's start then with the approach that you actually do. Some people have have called it demons, and and that casts us straight back to the Gnostics. <laughs> right. Sure. So could we take it from there? Sure. Let's let's uh, let's bring it back even further than the Gnostics. In in the book that I wrote with Tom, uh, Secret Machines, Gods. This is a book that's focused almost completely on the 
religious aspect of this phenomenon. Right. If you want to call it religious or spiritual or otherworldly or however you want to call it. Mm. And but we take a different approach. I think we take a different approach. I've been criticized that that book just is warmed over Eric von Daniken or Zechariah Sitchin or something. And that's most emphatically not true from the perspective that we're taking or the approach we're taking. Of course, some yeah, but at least you, you give uh, footnotes and stuff, right? References. I, I, of course. Yeah, mm. this, that's very important to me. And I think to many of my readers that they know where I've sourced things. Exactly. But the, the point is, is that, yes, Zechariah Sitchin and von Daniken have referenced ancient civilizations and blah, 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 and all that stuff. We're taking a different approach. We're saying, forget who built the pyramids. Uh, forget the Nazca lines for now. Just forget all of that. Look at the texts that were left behind. Look at their writings. Look at what they themselves said. And what did they say? Hmm. What, what were they implying? They're saying that there was contact. They were saying that something came down from the heavens. They said there was a kind of communication, a rudimentary form. And that this kind of jump-started civilization all around the globe. Humans have been on the planet for more than two million years. But we only know about civilizations in the last, oh, 20,000 years, perhaps. Mm. So, and it all happened almost simultaneously. So you had civilizations in Asia, in South America, North America, everywhere. There were civilizations being built up in Africa all over the place, using a lot of the same ideas, some of the same architecture. We have pyramids in China. We have pyramids, of course, in Egypt and in, and in Mexico and all around the world, in yeah. Asia. Yeah. So you have this, these, these, the, this impetus. People are trying to do this, and they're linking this technology with ideas of immortality and space travel. This seems to be common to a lot of these cultures. So what we're saying is, let's just stop there, hold it there. What are they trying to tell us? If we look more deeply, will we find other evidence of contact? So this goes beyond gods, demons, angels, anything else. These can be projections of humans onto something that they're trying desperately to understand. Yeah, like a cargo cult, right? Exactly, which mm. is why we start off the story with a cargo cult. Um, this is like a cargo cult, and from our perspective, from my perspective especially, it's not just religion that's a cargo cult. It's our science and technology as well, uh, because our science and technology is geared towards these double ideas of immortality and space travel. Mm. We are geared towards this. We're looking up. We're trying to get off planet. No matter what science we're involved in, that seems to be the unspoken thing, the unspoken uh, gestalt behind all of this is this kind we're not really that interested in preserving the planet have you noticed <laughs> it's not a question of you know sitting there and saying how can we make the planet safer for ourselves and our children mm. we're not we're developing rockets we're developing machines we're developing a high-speed internet and all sorts of artificial intelligence weapons cyborgs robots androids this whole thing is geared towards space travel hmm. and my feeling is that back at the times of ancient egypt or in the times of ancient Sumer, uh, or any of the ancient civilizations, religion and science were not two separate boxes. No, it was all the same thing. Mm. It was one thing. It was one approach to reality, one approach to this contact. We've broken into little pieces yeah. in the last few hundred years, Good point. especially since Newton. Um, but what we're looking at is really one concerted effort that we're all we've all been touched by this, what I call a traumatic event. And we're all reliving this traumatic event in our churches. You mean the fall, the catastrophe? Well, the in ancient times. 
whatever happened. Yes, whatever that was. Mm. I'm still open to suggestion. On it. I'm not defining it like others are. I'm, I'm saying something happened. It was traumatic. Mm. And like victims of post-traumatic stress disorder, we're kind of reliving this trauma generation after generation, and we're expressing it in our culture, we're expressing it in our science, and in our religion. You're so right, because we are like, yeah, we have PTSD, because uh, victims will have uh, trauma, will make uh, give them amnesia, yep. and the, it will give them denial. And make them violent. Exactly. And we're like that. We don't recall anything before, uh, let's say, maximum 10,000 10, years, and we're in denial about it. I always say, if you want to control someone... The best method, more than force, more than anything else, is to remove the memory. Sure. And the same goes collectively as individually. Uh -huh. And so uh, we only see, like, a, a real victim would give subconscious tells. And that's what we do. Because despite the suppression, it slips more and more out there. Stuff from antediluvian and ancient times. Mm -hmm. And what you guys do is commendable in this perspective, because what you do is that you, you just <clears throat> roll up your sleeves and you say, okay, let's start from scratch. What can we definitely surmise? Like when you say we know something happened, but we're not going to advocate pet hypothesis about it, but we can still surmise something from what did happen, like yes. this uh, denial thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm on board with that. Uh, but continue. Well, that said, you put it beautifully. This is this is our approach. We are not. We cannot come out definitively say anything one way or the other. That would that would make us basically like leaders of a cult or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. Which is exactly what we don't want mm. to do. Um, we're trying to increase knowledge, and in order to increase knowledge, we have to broaden perspectives. We have to think outside the boxes that we've been that we've been grown up that we've grown up with that we were educated into. Mm. So we have to sort of stretch the limits of of uh, the way we know things and try to find out other ways of knowing that are still amenable to process. They're still amenable to um, scientific method, let's say, to a certain degree. Mm. So what we want to do is is just take, take it honestly, take it seriously. We don't, yes, the, the, the visitors, whatever they are, this phenomenon may represent a threat. We have to be aware of that. We have to do what we can to protect ourselves against the possibility of that. Anything less will be kind of foolish in my estimation. That doesn't mean we have to go and shoot them down. That doesn't mean we have to act aggressively. But we do have to understand how these things work, how these machines work. Uh, we have no idea why they're here. We cannot have any idea what their intentions might be. Anybody who says that we know what their intentions are, we know absolutely, has to be lying. Yeah, because, to themselves or to us. Well, yeah, because we're projecting mm. human ideas, human emotions, human values, and human motivations on something we don't know anything about. We're doing exactly what the ancients did, only we do it with our current paradigm. Exactly. And that's to me, is dangerous. So we have to kind of be careful in both ways. Don't assume that they're out here to kill us. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they may kill us accidentally because they may not see us as anything more important than an anthill. Mm. There could be, you don't know, hostility, it doesn't have to be the human idea of evil intention. It could just be that we're treated with violence as a kind of accident of whatever is going on. Casualty of... Uh, yeah, process. collateral damage. Yeah, but Richard Dolan has argued for this for the longest time that 
we need to take this approach and he's kind of brought back to to honest uh, decent uh, perspective that you can be critical to UFOs you don't have to worship them religiously sure. but what does the what does the ancient sources say do they take a multiple approach i think they do because there are uh, like i said the gnostics were very critical maybe you can account for the different perspectives that the ancient had i can do that and some seem to be on board with them so so what was the ancients uh, examples of ancient approaches to this problem i think it wasn't until the new testament era that we actually talked about a god as being all good and all loving and all kind there was always this kind of schizophrenic attitude uh where 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 the gods were concerned they these were people to be these are people entities whatever to be feared you were in terror of god even moses could not look god in the face right mm. uh god is you know asking for massacres and wipe out this tribe and wipe out that tribe as you keep going back further you find the gods are very capricious and this idea of their being capricious and not caring about humans except sometimes other times not may not be because they were humans who were you know psychologically disadvantaged it might be because we did not understand what they were doing how they were doing it or what their rationale was so we imputed to them human emotions of love and hate and revenge and and all the rest of it that were confusing pride yeah. even jesus is confused this way because jesus cursed the fig tree mm. uh jesus threw the money lenders out of the temple i mean he was not nonviolent jesus was violent also brought uh, the sword yeah yeah exactly so there we have a problem and that could be the problem that we face if i may be so bold as i i hesitate to critic to criticize people by name i don't think it's fair but in the case of the greer uh gestalt the, the greer narrative mm-hmm. we have not have yet to find a god figure in in any mythology in any religion around the world that is just a center of peace and kindness and sweetness and light there just aren't any mm-hmm. at least as aspects of that deity that will yeah. be destructive mm. there always are mm. otherwise why would we obey if the god was just you know like mom <laughs> you know i mean it's it's some sweet you know old lady baking cookies um if that's god then what's the point so god has to be this parent figure for us right somebody's going to slap us if we're wrong and then praise us if we're nice so we're we're imputing all of these human ideas and human qualities onto these machines and to me yeah, that but now you're bogged down into the big timeless question of evil mm-hmm. you you're walking straight into that philosophical problem yeah right because we have conflated evil with a spiritual concept the mm. gnostics believed in the demiurgos so the demiurgos was basically evil but the demiurgos was responsible for creation yeah but they named they named the archons yeah specifically mm-hmm. so we're we're in, we're in that catch 22 we're in a bind we are creatures and so we're in this bind now how do we deal with the spiritual world we have very little experience direct experience of the spiritual world that's another problem we have mm-hmm. as human beings we cannot discern what these different altered states really mean and how how they uh relate to ourselves we only read about them in books uh so we try to make sense of the texts and balance them one against the other and we're more confused than ever the problem of evil and the problem of of spirituality in general is such a deep problem that it can only be experienced directly 
Mm-hmm. And what people are telling you in books or leaders or gurus or wherever else, you know, it's blind men and the elephant, basically, all talking about one aspect of this thing, but never giving you the complete picture. Mm-hmm. And we thought that by getting a multidisciplinary approach to at least this one phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, getting, a multi, getting all the blind men in the same room with the elephant, that we will compare notes and come out with a pretty good picture of the elephant. We realize everyone's going to have a different perspective on it. Everyone's going to have a different idea. But maybe if we can put them all together without having an agenda, without saying I'm right and you're wrong, just bringing this information together, bringing it not just from the sciences but from the humanities as well, because the humanities may have the key to this more than the sciences. Science fiction may have the key to this. People like Arthur C. Clarke, Philip Dick, and people like that may have understood this phenomenon better than we realize, have some of the mm-hmm. keys to understanding it, to, to opening up the dialogue in specific ways that we can begin to appreciate it. So if we can do this, then we may get to the, we may get to the, ancient, the, the, the answer to the age-old problem of evil. Evil may be a word that we use indiscriminately because we don't quite know what it is. If a hurricane comes along and destroys your house, do we characterize that as evil? Mm. We, uh, the effect on us is the same as if somebody came and burned our house down, right? True, uh, true. But, but, but even in religions, there is distinctions. Like they say, sure. well, it's the force of destruction. It's called. It has to happen right. eventually. Yeah. Something destructive. And if you and if you take that position, then you have to redefine evil. You have to get you have to fine fine tune that concept, mm. finer and finer and finer until it almost doesn't mean anything uh, to the to the conscious brain. No, but at least we can say evil has to do with intention. Yeah. If I accidentally step on an ant, right. that's destruction by accident. But if I intentionally uh, step on their hill, right. that's that's quote unquote evil I'm, I'm not trying to reduce the complexity here no but to the end but i'm just saying to the end it's the same thing exactly and if we are the ants here yeah and if someone intentionally want to at least interfere with us yeah we're kind of in a position where we're obliged to take a stance against that sure we are in that position but not only if they're intentionally trying to destroy us we have to take as many precautions against the accidental destruction as well Yeah, yeah. And when we're dealing with the secret machines, when we're dealing with the UFO phenomena, we may very well be dealing with a phenomenon like that, that could be destructive unintentionally, just mm. through proximity to us, as many experiencers have claimed. You know, uh, proximity to a UFO that's landed, for instance, there's all sorts of stories about people experiencing radioactive kinds of burns or other you know harmful effects on their body. Whether those things are true or provable or not. It's still it's in it's in the mindset of people looking at the UFO phenomenon. We're thinking, is this a potential source of, of harm? Am I going to get sick from this, you know, or is it going to cause some other kind of psychological damage? Maybe um, mm. there's a lot of people who've had experiences or who claim to have had experiences that would seem to be to some extent psychologically damaged. Did that happen before or after? Mm. Was that a consequence, or does that or is that did that set up this experience? There's so much we don't know. And we're not taking seriously, you know, and we have to take seriously. And to make it worse, there's claims of the opposite too, yes. that they've been healed. Exactly, mm. exactly, yeah. Right. So, uh, uh, but uh, full disclosure, I haven't had time yet to read your book. It's still uh, pretty new. So uh, I, I can't give you the optimal questions for that. But I imagine you take on a narrative where you argue that 
machines have been around pre-human industrialization, right? Well, I don't go quite so far just to say it that way. Mm. Uh, I say that machines, for instance, I quote uh, a famous Egyptologist who uh, who says that the, the Great Pyramid of Giza is a resurrection machine. Mm. Um, he uses that term quite deliberately, that it was a machine designed, at least the intention was, to enable the pharaoh or whoever was in it to resurrect at some place, perhaps not on Earth, perhaps in some other dimension or some other planet or, or wherever. Mm. Um, so the idea was that he understood that these were machines. These were not just temples or, or something that we just developed as humans uh, to worship the gods. This was something very specific. They had temples. You know, you can go to Luxor, you can go up and down the Nile and see temples. The pyramids were something else. They were intended to do something else, and they were very specifically constructed. So to look at them as a machine, and in the words of this uh, Egyptologist as a uh, you know, as a resurrection machine, I think is shows tremendous insight. We had machines long before the Industrial Revolution, obviously. Um, the machines were intended to do a variety of things, and sometimes the machines had what might have been considered uh, fanciful applications. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Babylon around the sixth century, seventh century BCE. I'm thinking of Ezekiel, who's uh, in Babylon. And he's having his vision of a machine. Mm. He's having the vision of the chariot. And his vision is so complicated that people really can't get their heads around what he's seeing or what he's talking about. Nothing seems to make a lot of sense. It's coded language. But if we compare his vision to what they actually did in Babylon, it becomes a bit more clear. And in Babylon, they would take the statues of the gods out of the temples at certain times of the year and roll them through the streets on chariots. And so the, the gods would actually come down to the people from the temples and be paraded through the streets all the way down to the river and then all the way back up again and put back into the temple. That to me then might have been the uh, inspiration for Ezekiel's vision because he's talking about a god or something that appears like unto a man sitting in a chariot coming down from heaven. Yeah. I mean, if Ezekiel was even slightly stoned, <laughs> this would make a lot of sense. Yeah. So maybe that's what he's talking about. If so, we're talking about, again, another kind of machine, a machine that was intended to breach, to, to, to repair the breach, rather, between the people and the gods, the ones who had been here and who had left. Because, of course, the prayer of the ancient Sumerians was, spirit of the sky, remember, spirit of the earth remember this idea that that you know, they would light the fires on new year's day on top of all the ziggurats to kind of signal back to those beings from the heavens to come back down and not forget them so there was a there was a tremendous literature about that which is why i always say you know the architecture is important for sure but if we focus too much on the architecture and trying to figure out how it was built and claim it was aliens who did it or some advanced technology we're going to miss the point the point, yeah. the point is in the writings. The writings are very specific, and we have to take them as literally as we possibly can. Right. Um, there is the problem, of course, of 
are because it's not just uh, science and uh, spirituality that was won in ancient times. There's also that dualism, as is so inherent in our modern consciousness, didn't exist. In other words, distinction between matter and spirit wasn't there. In, in fact, you can make a scientific case for it also. You, you, some call it uh, a spiritual materialism. It's that it's just degrees of frequencies right. that uh, distinction between matter and consciousness. When I perceive something, when I experience something, it, obviously it's an, it's an um, imagination taking place in my consciousness and I'm uh, resorted to only have the five senses. Well, you can discuss, of course, there's other senses, but at least those five senses gives me that information. But if I had another access to, to vibrations that we can't sense, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum is huge, right? Mm -hmm. You can talk about x-rays, you can talk about infrared, ultraviolet, and we do compensate somewhat with developing machines to help us perceive into these specters of existence that we don't have direct access to. But my point is that if we then uh, acknowledge that there is no big difference, then it brings even these so-called spiritual experiences with the UFOs in a different light. Because then Graham Hancock have a point that, let's say, a shaman takes a journey in consciousness and perceives other aspects of this vibrational reality that we can't we don't call it material because we can't sense it directly right but it's still valid in that let's say like a, a an astral travel if i if i journey all the way to where you are and i can actually perceive something going on there then consciousness does work as my friend Alex Akiris in Skeptical Podcast says, it's proven that consciousness work, that you can actually get practical results from consciousness. So this, do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? That sure. the distinction is weaker than you would think from a dualist perspective. No, of do course. Do you touch this? Uh, I do in Secret Machines. I go into even specifically sh shamanism and, you know, uh, various cultures around the world, how they approach this idea of ascending on a, a tree or a ladder or something going up to the heavens and coming back down. I even talk about uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, mm. you know, and seeing the ladder and the angels coming up and down. The idea that this, this is a consciousness field that we're talking about, we're, it, we have to include the consciousness studies in this. And I do that in the second book of, of this trilogy that I'm working on with Tom, talks about the, the consciousness aspect of it specifically. Mm. So uh, Hal Putoff, is, of course, someone who's been dealing with consciousness stuff since the 1970s, as far as I know. Mm. Um, and he's part of the, the team around us. Uh, but aside from that, aside from the remote viewing experiments and all the rest of it, uh, the idea that consciousness is not, uh, it's not a secretion of the body the way some people will say it is, mm. right? That it exists kind of outside the body, in a sense. Um, and that the idea of a shaman perhaps making these contacts uh, because the shaman goes to the heavens and comes back down. Mm. That's his function or her function is to go to the heavens and bring back sacred knowledge and bring back the spells that are needed to, to cure diseases and all the rest of it. So there is this, this connection between traveling to the heavens and sacred knowledge and, you know, the assistance of the gods to help humans. This idea exists, but you have to go up there. You have to be the one that climbs the rope ladder, that climbs the snake, that climbs whatever it is to get to the heavens, to get the information and bring it down. Hmm. So there's kind of an onus is on 
us to go and find out what this is and to make that journey, whether we do it collectively or as individuals, but that journey still has to be undertaken. So your point about spirituality in the body, there's a very good selection of essays, uh, and I've forgotten for the moment the name of the book, but it will come to me, on Haitian voodoo. Mm-hmm. And the idea that there is, that they, the, the gods, or not just the gods, but people, the, the soul of an individual person is transcorporeal, that there are multiple uh, spiritual types of souls within a given identity, and that mm-hmm. these can leave and make room for the gods during the transpossession of the loa during the, the rituals. But it's not a mechanistic, dualistic point of view. It's not, well, my spirit left, another spirit came in. Mm-hmm. It's more complicated than that. And the, the voodoo understanding of the relationship between body and spirit and soul and all of this is quite complex. It sounds like they're talking about the resonance principle. You could say so, yeah. In, in, in a sense, it is. They may disagree, but in a sense, from my perspective, there's a lot of similarity. Mm. So you have two angels, which are the, the grosser parts of your spiritual components, the little good angel and the big good angel. Um, the big good angel leaves the body to make room for the spirit of the loa uh, to enter you and to possess you during the trance. So there, these two, this, the little angel still remains there, but the big angel has gone according to their, their 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 system. But then there's a lot more to it than that. There's the metet. There's the the spirit of the head. You know, like you're almost a superior self that's involved. They have all the they broke it down many different ways, and they use that not just to have theosophical discussions, right? Mm. They use that as their technology. They use that in creating the charms and creating the bottles in which they encase these spirits and to affect change in the world. This technology is integral Mm. to understanding how to operate their their magical uh, uh, practices. It's all integrated. It's still a science and technology mixed. And I find that fascinating. It's true. If I I levitate by means of... uh, machines, technology machines, uh, matter, or if I levitate by means of something else I manipulate reality with directly through my consciousness, the end result is the same. I'm still levitating. The forces are still responding. (laughs) Sure. Exactly. Right. So it is a technology. Well, it is, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I mean, I've been taking this position for 20, 30 years now that uh, spirit, I'm interested in the technology of religion, the technology of spirituality. Mm-hmm. The dogma does not interest me really in the least. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in are the practices. How do you do this? How does one get from this this place to the next place? So to me, it's a technology, which is why I've always found it interesting that uh, Tibetan lamas, for instance, uh, can have very deep and detailed discussions with Jewish Kabbalists. Right. They have no religion in common <laughs> at all, no language, no culture in common. But they do meet on the one issue of when you meditate, how does it happen this way? And do you experience this and does this happen? Mm-hmm. They compare notes. And this is this is the technology that interests me because I think it's at the root of understanding the UFO phenomenon. It's If we don't have that knowledge, we don't have it yet. We don't understand how our consciousness works. And I think that might be the key to understanding how the phenomenon works. 
you actually agree here with Stephen Greer. He he kind of makes the same point, but you you come he comes from it from uh, almost savior perspective that there are his intentions that are different here. Yeah. He kind of puts it in a almost religious perspective where there are good guys and superior and savior and angels, whereas you are, are more critical. But you kind of both point to the multiple approaches that's possible to take on this. Um, sure. So. I think I think it's the only rational yeah. approach to take. It's just that I don't have a, a good guy, bad guy narrative on this. I, I just don't have enough information. And I think that may be a projection of human desires to see human qualities in the other yeah. um, and to try to understand them. I think that's a mistake. I think it's a complete mistake. I think if we take that position, we're always going to be running around in circles. We've got to be open to a different interpretation of consciousness and of intention and of what's good and bad for us and all the rest of it. If you're uncritical and you you just operate on the assumption that these forces, whatever is flying these machines, is benevolent and godlike, I can't think of anything more more naive <laughs> and more potentially self-destructive. You know, you just yeah. go off into into the secret garden. And for me that's that's a really dangerous place to be because I'm not by nature a follower of of a religious impulse that way you you wouldn't meet cortez with flowers and, and fruits no 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 <laughs> i might somebody send somebody else to do that <laughs> but i'll be hiding behind a rock with a bow and arrow <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? i'll be i'll be fleeing before you can see the yeah. ships anchoring right. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're soon going to take a break but i have uh, another question here um I, I kind of got out of the flow now. I had a question follow-up to what you were saying. So let's so let's take that break. And when we come back, I'm going to hit you with a lot of more questions. Sure. About all of this. Okay. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 